Just a quick word of thanks to uh, both Mark and Ashley, who on the spur of the moment decided towards the end of the meeting last week that uh, they would open this opportunity for me, and I'm very grateful for that. Thank you. Uh, could I invite you to just join me for a brief moment of introspection and reflection? Uh, I invite you, as we, as we just take a, a half a minute or so, to sit in silence and gaze at Jesus. Don't look for him way over there, somewhere in the blue, in the ether. Look for him in here. Right now, Jesus Christ indwells you. By his Spirit, he is there. So will you do that, please? Just for a, a 30 seconds or so, let's just gaze in upon him and behold the beauty of the Lord. Jesus, we lean back into you in these moments. We gather our thoughts and we all the distractions that the enemy would throw at us and we, we focus on the one who is all beautiful. We say thank you that you live in us. Thank you that we are in you. Now be glorified, Lord. So let it be. Amen. I'd like to talk to you today about the call to know God. But before that, can I tell you a little bit about myself and one of the hurdles that I faced in my life for many years? Uh, as, a, as a leader, as a pastor, for almost 50 years now, uh, there was one book of the Bible that I really struggled with. Uh, as a result, I never preached on it. I may have referred to it, but I never preached on it because I simply couldn't get my head around it. And that was the book called The Song of Solomon. It was... It was one of those blockages that I chose to ignore, I thought, well, I'll never understand it. Uh, I, here's something strange. I felt I understood the book of Revelation even more than I understood the Song of Solomon. But uh, it, was, it was one of those, those challenges in my life that I... I chose to just put to one side and sort of maybe I'll deal with it at some point. If not, I'll understand when I get to heaven. And uh, the problem that I had with the, the book called The Song of Solomon, or as I'm going to refer to it, uh, probably 
primarily as being the song of songs. Uh, because that is what it is. It is a song. It was written by Solomon. Uh, and it's, it's a song that, that tops all other songs because of one thing. It speaks about how Jesus relates to you and me. How the bridegroom relates to the bride, us, the church. And the problem I had was the language that I found in the book called The Song of Solomon. I had listened to many teachings on it, and uh, I never heard but a passing remark uh, of the fact that it was, it, was a, it, it was a story of how our heavenly bridegroom related to us as his bride. Fleetingly it would be said, but then the emphasis was always on the literal language that we find in that book. And uh, the teachings that, that I was exposed to coming from many leaders and so forth almost inevitably placed an emphasis on the physical relationship that exists between a husband and his wife. And so there was, there was this expression of I'm just going to say it, sexuality that always seemed to come out when that book was spoken about. Sensuality seemed to be the prominent part uh, found in, in the book, The Song of Songs. And I had a problem with that because as a bloke, I, I, I just could not understand that language and relate it to my relationship with my heavenly bridegroom. The, the literal meaning was problematic for me. And so as a result, I, I just chose to shelve it until such time as I might understand it. And here, 50 years later, almost, in the summer of last year, I saw the light. I was exposed to the teaching of a man on the book of the Song of Solomons that let the scales fall off my eyes and enabled me to really get hold of what that book was all about. And I hope I don't, I don't offend anybody by saying that that man was Brian Simmons, the author of the Passion Translation. Now I know there's a big outcry from many, many quarters that slammed the Passion Translation. Be that as it may, 
But one thing I know is that God helped me through what that man was saying as I sat there that morning looking at a YouTube presentation by him on the Song of Solomon. And unashamedly, I wept. For the first time I understood that book was saying something about how Jesus loves me and how I respond to him as his bride. He made it very clear that the interpretation of the Song of Songs is correct. It is a literal translation and the language is what it says. But what he also brought out was that this book written 3,000 years ago left you and I, the modern English reader, when we read the literal translation, I say again, which is correct, leaves us in a place, well, it did me in any case, of not grasping and understanding what it was really about. To the Hebrew mind who read that book or that scroll as it might have been, as it was read to them or they read it themselves 3,000 years ago, they would have had an understanding of it that was quite different to the understanding you and I would now have if we just read it, that cold print on the paper. Because the Hebrew mind had a cultural understanding and grasp of the true understanding behind the words. It was a, probably later on that day as I, was, as I was thinking about the experience I'd had that morning as I'd watched that video that the Holy Spirit brought so powerfully into my mind, bang, just like that from nowhere, that I had purchased some seven or eight years ago a book that I'd paid quite a bit of money for and had been sitting on my shelf really. Uh, but it's like the Lord just highlighted that book to me and it's a book called the Chumash. And all that really means is that it's a printed version of the, of the Torah, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the books of Moses as they are called. And it is even printed as a, a, a Jewish book, Hebrew book would be printed. You start from the back cover and you move towards the front cover as we would call it. So I got the book out and I, I looked at it and there in, in the Chumash is not just the first five books of the Old Testament but it also included this book I'm talking about now, the Song of Songs as well as Ruth, uh, as well as Ecclesiastes, as well as Lamentations and uh, so I, 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 I just 
quickly turned to the Song of Songs and I started reading not just the text, but also the, the comments of Hebrew sages going back hundreds and hundreds of years who would have read that book with an understanding quite different to the one you and I would have when we read it today. And this is what I discovered. Because they understood it culturally, I want to read to you one or two comments that these sages made. They say, without doubt, the Song of Songs, Shir HaSharim, the, the Hebrew expression, is one of the most difficult books of Scripture. And I said, Amen to that. Not because it is so hard to understand, but because it is so easy to misunderstand. And I learned that the Song of Songs had been so perplexing to me only because I had taken it literally. Whereas it is an allegory of the love that existed between when it was written between God and Israel. Another comment. The truth and simple meaning of the Song of Songs is the allegorical meaning. The literal meaning of the words is so far from the meaning that it is false in terms of how we understand it. My understanding since that time has totally changed. And as I've, I've read it, I, I'm still working my way through it verse by verse by verse. But as, as I read it and I, 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 I compare with the Passion Translation who, where he really tackled the, the cultural understanding of, of presenting the Song of Songs to us, I've had moments of just such depth of feeling of oneness and intimacy with Jesus, my heavenly bridegroom. Totally changed my understanding. God and his love for Israel. God looked upon Israel as being his. Paul in writing to the Romans in chapter 9 verse 4 says this, speaking about Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. And he goes on to list seven aspects that belong to the Jews that, that are uniquely Jewish. Uh, and and since, since the new covenant was introduced, some of it has overflowed onto us. Uh, but some of them are still, of those six aspects, uniquely Jewish. 
And so as I, as, I, as I gained this understanding that this was an allegory of the relationship that God had with His people, His sons, His daughters, Israel, the Holy Spirit began to open my eyes and lead me into that wonderful, glorious truth that, that, that is ours this morning. That you and I have become his children, his people as well. In Galatians 3 verse 29, it says, If we belong to Christ, and I look across you, the audience this morning, and I, I think the majority of you can say, Yeah, that's me. I belong to Jesus. If we belong to Christ, we are Abraham's seed. And then in Ephesians 2, from verse 12 onwards, Paul also says this. He says, there was a time when we were separate from Christ. And it's interesting, he uses this wording. We were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. In verse 13, but now we've been brought near, thank God, through the blood of Christ. And verse 19, no longer foreigners, no longer aliens, but we are fellow citizens with God's people. And there's that, that linking understanding that as God looked upon Israel as being special to him, the apple of his eye, and he goes on to say that as long as the sun rises in the morning, as long as it sets at night, as long as there's a moon, as long as the waves of the sea come in on the shore, I will never forget Israel. And as far as I know, those things are still happening. But I want to make this point that as special as they are or were to God, so special you and I are to Him now, today. We have not replaced Israel. We have joined what heaven observes to be like a citizenship, a special belonging to Him together with them. Now they're going to be paying a high price for their secularism and turning their back on their Messiah. But I also read something very peculiar that I don't quite understand. And Paul says in Romans, and especially when you look at Romans 11, verses 1 and 2, and then again round about verse, verse 8, and then another warning, don't be arrogant Gentiles. And then he cops, uh, stops it, uh, caps it off, with verses 28 and 29 where he says something that the covenants he made with them, the promises he made with them are irrevocable. But he's embraced us, the Gentile world who turned to Jesus. If we belong to Christ, he's embraced us and drawn us into his heart. And we are his bride. God's people. I've taken something from the Expositor's Greek Testament. And let me just read it to you. It should be on the slide behind me. The 
people who belong to God, that Greek word is not to be restricted to Jews, the patriarchs, or the Old Testament believers, but is a comprehensive name for Christ followers. The Jewish people were once the saints of God, and Gentiles stood outside having no part in their citizenship. Now, all Gentile believers, like these Ephesians that Paul was writing to at that time, they form part of that greater Israel of God. Galatians 6.16 Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God, which consists of all Christ followers, and they share in all the rights of such. And another well-known scholar, Alfred, writes this. He says, the saints of God, in the widest sense, are all the members of the mystical body of Christ. So you're part of something special this morning. And, and, and you should have the liberty and the freedom to congratulate yourself. I am a special person, you should be saying. I belong to the Lord of Lords. I'm His and He is mine. And all of this is leading up to me talking about knowing God. So the Song of Songs, that allegory of God's love for Israel and their love for Him, which waned and rose and waned again and oh they got into so much trouble they're still getting into trouble today but it's also now hear me it is the duet the song of songs is the duet of love between Jesus and his bride and I apologize to my I just seeing some of my the people we meet with in, in life group, and I, I, I know I've been bombarding you with this, but thank you, please tolerate me as I, as I try and help uh, the rest of us. Now, the text for this morning's talk, and that doesn't mean I'm only just starting, I'm, I'm halfway through. <laughs> Ephesians 1, verses 17 to 23. Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may, and here's that word, you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, God's holy people, in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And by the way, I'm not going to preach on it, but maybe sometime you too are seated there. Is that heresy? No, it's Scripture. Because that same chapter in the next one points out that we, you and I were raised with Jesus and seated with Him 
at the right hand of the Father. Oh, that we may live there. Another time, another day. The right hand in the heavenly realms, verse 21, far above all rule and authority, far above all power and dominion and every title or name that can be given or invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. When did that happen? When is it for? It's for now. He says not only in this present age. Sometimes we relegate all of that as happening only when, you know, the sweet by and by, but it says so clearly not only in the present age is Jesus there, in that seat of authority, in that position of supremacy, he is there now. And so where are you seated? Where am I seated? Lord, help us to step into a greater authority and demonstration of the Christ within that we may know you. Amen. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to the head over everything for the church. Who's that? Us. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There, there are probably three more or more sermons in, in, in that portion of scripture that I've just read now. But I want to bring you back to what we read there in, in verse 17. Paul says he's praying that the spirit of wisdom and revelation may increase within us. Why? So that we may know our Lord and Savior. Now again, bear with me as we dig into that word know to try and get a better understanding of it. In the Greek, epignosis, and I don't know if our Greek-speaking young ladies here this morning, if you are, forgive me if, if I haven't pronounced that per correctly. But in the Strong's word study, it says this about it, about that word no. It is knowledge that you and I gain through first-hand relationship. Not just from standing at a distance and seeing it, oh yeah, that's what, that's what it is. No. A first-hand relationship. Goes on to say this. It is contact knowledge that is appropriate, that is apt and fitting to first-hand experiential knowing. Not just a you know, I know that, yeah, I was taught it in school. No, it is experiencing it. That's what this word know is all about. 
That, you know, the, the word knowledge comes from the Greek word gnosis. And that has an understanding that it is knowledge gleaned from first-hand personal experience. Now those, this is not what I've, these are the clever people who understand what, what the original Greek is all about. They're telling us this is what it means. And Thayer's Greek lexicon puts it like this, to know exactly. To know thoroughly. You see how different a glance at that word makes to that portion of Scripture? Paul saying, I am praying that that which belongs to God, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, may come and grab hold of your mind and pull aside the curtains and pull aside what just your literal meaning of it means and, and, and that, you may, that you may get to a place where you know Him and it incorporates all those definitions I've just given you. That kind of knowing, as I admit, I did not quite have it all together. And I still don't. I think I may have said last week that I'm a rank rookie at pressing into intimacy with Jesus. More about that in a few seconds. And so I also mentioned to you last week the, the, the scripture, Isaiah 40, 30, 31, that, that it contains something that, uh, you know, uh, an understanding that will, will help us this morning if we unpack that a little. Now, what does Isaiah 40, 31 say? It says, those that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will rise up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now again, that's another sermon that can be unpacked to each one of those things that, that would be the result of waiting on the Lord. But I'm going to stick just, just, just with the one part. It says, those that wait upon the Lord, that word wait in the Hebrew the root meaning means to bind or twist together as one would the strands of, of fiber to make a strong rope. And you twist them all together for the purposes of strengthening. So that weight is not just the, you know, when is he going to show up? And it's not that at all. That word Wait is a Hebrew verb. It is action. It involves something from those who are doing the waiting. They that twist themselves together, that entwine themselves together, that entangle themselves together with the Lord. shall renew their strength. You get the picture? It is not just, oh, hi Lord, 
Uh, have a good day, God. It's not that at all. It is coming to a halt. It is taking hold of our thoughts that are here, there and everywhere and pulling them together and focusing on the one who's in here. Not over there. In here. In your spirit. Do you know that you are about 99% empty space? Go check it out in Google. And, and you say, well, what on earth is that empty space? I suggest it's your spirit. Now the third person of the Godhead dwells in your spirit. Most of you is filled with God. But we're so busy with the world and what, you know, the demands and rushing here, rushing there. And, oh, time's running. By. We're so busy with that. We have diminished the potential and the size of that. But Isaiah 40.31 is saying to us this morning, Stop! It's saying to us, create space where nothing else will interfere and you focus in. You wait. And you begin to entangle with the divine spirit of the living God. And as you do, he reveals Jesus. You begin to see the eyes of your heavenly lover. You begin to feel his kisses upon your life. You read his word and something comes out and washes over you. And he's kissing you again. His goodness in your life. I'm sorry, I can't help but become emotional because it's so real. And He's calling us. It's, it's a grace that, that God is releasing upon His people in this day. I don't know what lies ahead, but God is preparing His people for something. And it's going to come about by this knowing God. I've said it to you before, and let me say it again. Folks, you're going to have to carve out the time. You're going to carve it out. It's not going to happen automatically. You're going to have to carve it out like you have a hammer and a chisel and you're going against that rock and you're carving out something. The resistance is there. You've got to carve out the time. Oh, I am praying that you may know him.
is what the apostle said. And I want to say again, I believe with all of my heart that God is releasing this grace upon his people at this time. It requires that dedication. It requires that effort. It requires that time. It requires a reset. A readjustment. And I'm just going to mention this one thing that is a result of waiting on him. It says it will renew their strength. And yes, it will affect you physically. But that's not where the main emphasis is. The main emphasis is focused on a new kind of life that will put you in a position of strength. And the wording there is re referring to, you know, you will rise up with wings as eagles. It's, it's talking about receiving from God the grace, if you like, spiritual wings, that as you wait, you will rise. Just like the eagle does. When it catches the thermals and rises higher without having to flap its wings. And in Africa I used to watch that so many times. The thermals of God are blowing. His spirit is breathing. And the invitation is catch those thermals. And you will renew your strength. You will rise higher. There will be a, a, an experience that will lift you to a, to a platform where, yes, whatever is happening around you is happening, but your, your, your prime focus and awareness will be your intimacy with Him and not the circumstances that are happening around you. It means making Jesus the main focus of your life. And then as we do that, we will be strengthened as we are entwined. A heavenly action, entangled in the Lord. So what is powerfully happening to those who are entwining themselves with Jesus? It begins to show you become a reflector. You reflect Him as a result of this entwining. 2 Corinthians 3.18 and I read from the Amplified. And we all with unveiled faces continually seeing as in the mirror, a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now get this. If you will do this, if you will pursue this knowing, if you will do this waiting, get this, this is what will happen. You are progressively being transformed into His image 
from one degree of glory to even more glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In the previous verse, Paul says, he says that we are free. Whom the Spirit sets free is free indeed. He says we are free. And then in that freedom, what happens is that we will reflect the inner reality, the one who dwells in us. And that's what I saw in Brian Simmons' face that morning. I saw something coming through his eyes and saw something on his face that caused me to weep. Lord, I want what he's got. And since then, I've been blessed to watch a few other people who reflect that in a dwelling presence of the living Christ they love. We don't, we don't have to do what Moses did when he came down from that mountain, having been in the presence of God, where the presence of God so infiltrated him that his face shone like a light and the people were afraid. He had to cover his face until such time as that glory had diminished and faded. No, we are different, Paul teaches us from Corinthians in that, that chapter 3 of the second letter. He, he, he shows us that, that we have an undiminishing glory that should be shining from us. And in fact... He makes the point that not only will it be like a one-time light, but something that will progressively grow as we wait. And you know what that word means? As we get to know Him, there will be a greater release of the glory of God from each and every child of His. Lord, please help us. And no veil will be over our spirits. And the eyes of our heart, the eyes of the spirit, the spiritual sight, the spiritual vision will become clearer and clearer and clearer. And that's how you're going to make a difference in this world. Here's a free translation of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Uh, not my translation, by the way. It's the Ellicott's commentary puts it like this. We behold the glory of the Lord, of the Jehovah of the Old Testament, but it is not as yet face to face, but as mirrored in the person of Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen who? The Father. We should be saying, if you've seen me, you've seen Jesus, the indwelling Christ. So, we look 
into a mirror reflecting the Christ. As we look upon Him, what reflects, re reflects of us is Him. I remember Yvonne and I visiting New York and standing in the Rockefeller Plaza. And there was these office types all around the place. It was lunchtime and they were sitting there. And a good number of them had uh, undone their ties and pulled open their shirt a bit. And, and they were holding like reflective pieces of metal. And sitting it here and catching a suntan. They were catching the rays of the sun... And the reflection was, was changing the pigmentation of their skin to a darker color. It would look rather strange, I think, once their shirts were off, their lovely tanned faces. But The point I'm making is that the Son of the living God, as we gaze at Him, his essence, who he is, his love, his provision, everything about him should be reflecting from us so that others can see the change. You were as pale as milk, my friend, but now you've got this lovely tan. Changed, transformed. That's what he's saying here. We are progressively being, and he uses the word in the NIV, in the Amplified rather, transformed. Remember I was talking briefly about becoming a new creature in Christ? What significance is all this? And I'm now going to wrap it up. How am I doing, Ash? What does that say? 5 to 12? 1 John 4, 16 to 17. The Apostle of Love writes this. He says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because, uh, put your seatbelts on, you got your seatbelts on? You're sitting really steady? Okay, here it comes. As he is, so are we in this world. This is a huge truth. And it is spoken in, 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 in simple, simple words. Words that are so incredibly deep that as we've read it in the past, we've just proof skimmed over it. Oh yeah, that's great. But we haven't stopped, we haven't looked at it, we haven't grasped it. I am like Jesus in this world. And the only way I'm going to be like that is by knowing Him, by that waiting upon Him. The potential is there, but in the lives of so many Christians, it is not realized.
John deals with many deep things in his epistles and in his act, his, his gospel. But here are nine little monosyllables. What can be simpler than, as he is, so are we in this world. Now grab hold of this as well, please. As a Christ follower, you are the likeness of Jesus. God is, you know, John has been saying that God is love in, in 1 John chapter 4. In fact, he says it twice. He says, God is love. And, and he then says in, in verse 16, Therefore, whoever lives in love, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God. And God lives in them. And I've got to curb this, but I, I just got to say this. Do you get that? We're talking about a divine union. God in you, you in God, us in God, He in us. If I was in an African church now, they'd be standing on the chairs. <laughs> By this mutual abiding, entwining. And you need to read that, that chapter for yourself to see what it, what it produces. It, it takes away fear. And, and it, it, perfect love drives out fear. And fear never fails. Astonishing. That we are as He is in this world. We in this world are as He is. Astonishing. Please notice that, that John does not say as He was. In other words, his, his earthly life. He says as He is. His heavenly life. His reigning life. His glorious life as He is now, so are we. Not so will we one day be, so are we. Folks, are you getting this? A reset needs to happen. But I say to you by the Spirit of God, it's not going to happen until we Chase after that what it means to know Him. I said last week, the five-minute devotional is not going to do it. Yeah, by all means, start with what you have. And God is going to open up for you an understanding of how to adjust things so that your, your, your 
pursuing of your, your heavenly bridegroom, that the song of songs will be your song, will become a reality. And so, because Jesus is the original, you become the reflection. I'm going to have to leave out a whole lot of stuff here. I'm going to close with this thought. The more that we entwine with the Lord, the more this truth is going to become obvious in our lives. If you watch an artist painting, a portrait painter, you'll see that he steadily and very carefully will add detail upon detail until he presents the complete resemblance of the subject. Right now, here and now, you and I are all that the unbelieving world has to see of Jesus. Let that sink in. That's all they got. They're not going to read their Bible. They're not even going to bother coming here or anywhere else on a Sunday morning. They're probably not even praying. So all they have is the believer, the body of Christ, the bride. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says to them, You are my letter. Well, God has written upon our lives, and we are letters that the world can read. It's all they're going to see. We illustrate Jesus. Everything about you and I, everything about us was made for God. That is the giver of life, God. That's his intention. You are made for him. We were created to need His presence. Until you find that, you'll be chasing after this, that, and the next thing for the rest of your life. You were created to find Him, to know Him, and so he must be the only reality that shapes your life. And I'm going to pray for us now. And I'd like us once again to just take a few moments. Wherever our minds have been going during this talk, whatever has been happening, uh, forget about your neighbor and just focus in. It's you and Jesus moment. That's what it is. 
And if you do that right now, just close your eyes and begin to look inward upon Jesus. If you're a Christ follower, he's there. Determine that he alone will become your identity. All the lies of the past, the enemy's tactics, the pain, the bruising, all of that that he's caused to try and create an identity for you is not your inheritance. Your inheritance is carrying the identity of the indwelling Christ and Savior. So focus on Him, Lord Jesus. I desire you with all of my heart. Take me deeper. Take me till I'm in that river of your spirit where my feet can no longer dictate what I do by being on what I think is firm ground. I want to be in deep waters. Waters to swim in. Waters where I'm immersed in all that you have provided for me, Jesus. Lord Jesus, cocoon us in your presence. Thank you for your love that is washing and freeing us from all that, that hinders. The plagues of heaviness and restrictions of falling off from our lives, they, they're gone, taken care of by your sacrifice and your, on the cross and your resurrection. And just pour the oil of your glory over us. And therefore, nothing that is from the enemy will be able to stick to us. It just slips right off. Because we're more aware of you and who you are and what you've accomplished for us than we are of what the enemy is trying to do circumstantially around us. We're beginning to emerge in your image as we pursue you, Jesus. We are glistening with the beauty of the oil of the Holy Spirit in whom we are bathed, who resides from fingertip to fingertip, from the crown of our heads to the soles of our feet. In Jesus' name we pray it. And we know you've heard this prayer. Amen. My friends, please don't think that I am 
I've been speaking to you from an exalted position. I'm not, I'm not there, I'm not there. But I'm on my way. And I pray that each and every one of us who understands that we are a changed creation will take this to heart. Like that song says, come and let us run together. Let us chase after him. God bless you. Thank you so much, Paul. Um, just want to encourage you guys from that is go away and just allow God to show you those moments you can carve out for him. Um, just it is so important that we allow God to transform us and the way we do that is by putting us in a place where he can influence us and that's by taking stuff away that would otherwise influence us so just take this opportunity this week to see what God will do in your life if you give him the opportunity to turn up and you will be amazed I tell you right now there is nothing like it in all of the world than giving God time to transform you. Bless you guys. We've got tea and coffee next door. Um, continue to fellowship together. That'd be great. We'll be here to this evening at 7 um, and then next week uh, on Sunday, same time. Bless you guys.